0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 3, Part 2 It was Aileen Peters who had to bear the brunt of her father's mental agony when he discovered, shortly after Lord Emsworth had left him, that the gem of his collection of scarabs had done the same. It is always the innocent bystander who suffers. "'The darned old sneak thief,' said Mr. Peters. "'Father?' "'Don't sit there saying father. "'What's the use of saying father? "'Do you think that is going to help, You're saying father? "'I'd rather the old pirate had taken the house and lot "'than that scarab. "'He knows what's what. "'Trust him to walk off with the pick of the whole bunch. "'I did think I could leave the father of the man "'who's going to marry my daughter for a second "'alone with the things. "'There's no morality among collectors. "'None.' I'd trust a syndicate of Jesse James, Captain Kidd, and Dick Turpin sooner than I would a collector. My Cheops of the Fourth Dynasty. I wouldn't have lost it for $5,000. But, Father, couldn't you write him a letter asking for it back? He's such a nice old man. I'm sure he didn't mean to steal the scarab. Mr. Peters' overwrought soul blew off steam in the shape of a passionate snort. Didn't mean to steal it, What do you think he meant to do, take it away and keep it safe for me for fear I should lose it? Didn't mean to steal it. Bet you he's well known in society as a kleptomaniac. Bet you that when his name is announced his friends pick up their spoons and send in a hurry call to police headquarters for a squad to come and see that he doesn't sneak the front door. Of course he meant to steal it. He has a museum of his own down in the country. My Cheops is going to lend tone to that. I'd give $5,000 to get it back. If there's a man in this country with the spirit to break into that castle and steal that scarab and hand it back to me, there's 5000 waiting for him right here, and if he wants, he can knock that old safe blower on the head with a jimmy into the bargain. But, Father, why can't you simply go to him and say it's yours and that you must have it back? And have him come back at me by calling off this engagement of yours, not if I know it. "'You can't go about the place charging a man with theft "'and ask him to go on being willing to have his son marry your daughter, can you? "'The slightest suggestion that I thought he had stolen the scarab "'and he would do the proud old English aristocrat and end everything. "'He's in the strongest position a thief has ever been in. "'You can't get at him.' "'I didn't think of that.' "'You don't think at all. "'That's the trouble with you,' said Mr. Peters.' Years of indigestion had made Mr. Peter's temper, even when in a normal mood, perfectly impossible. In a crisis like this, it ran amok. He vented it on Aileen because he had always vented his irritabilities on Aileen, because the fact of her sweet, gentle disposition, combined with the fact of their relationship, made her the ideal person to receive the overflow of his black moods. While his wife had lived, he had bullied her, "'On her death, Aileen had stepped into the vacant position. "'Aileen did not cry, "'because she was not a girl who was given to tears. "'But for all her placid good temper, she was wounded. "'She was a girl who liked everything in the world "'to run smoothly and easily, "'and these scenes with her father always depressed her. "'She took advantage of a lull in Mr. Peter's flow of words "'and slipped from the room.' Her cheerfulness had received a shock. She wanted sympathy. She wanted comforting. For a moment, she considered George Emerson in the role of comforter. But there were objections to George in this character. Aileen was accustomed to tease and chat with George. But at heart, she was a little afraid of him. An instinct told her that as a comforter, he would be too volcanic and supermanly for a girl who was engaged to marry another man in June. George, as comforter, would be far too prone to trust to action rather than to the soothing power of the spoken word. George's idea of healing the wound, she felt, would be to push her into a cab and drive her to the nearest registrar's. No, she would not go to George. To whom, then? The vision of Joan Valentine came to her. Of Joan as she had seen her yesterday strong, cheerful, self reliant, bearing herself. "'in spite of adversity, with a valiant jauntiness. "'Yes, she would go and see Joan. "'She put on her hat and stole from the house. "'Curiously enough, only a quarter of an hour before, "'R. Jones had set out with the exact same object in view. "'At almost exactly the hour when Aileen Peters set off to visit her friend, "'Miss Valentine, three men sat in the cozy smoking-room of Blanding's Castle.' They were variously occupied. In the big chair nearest the door, the Honorable Frederick Threepwood, Freddy to pals, was reading. Next to him sat a young man whose eyes, glittering through rimless spectacles, were concentrated on the upturned faces of several neat rows of playing cards. Rupert Baxter, Lord Emsworth's invaluable secretary, had no vices, but he sometimes relaxed his busy brain with a game of solitaire. Beyond Baxter, a cigar in his mouth, and a weak highball at his side, the Earl of Emsworth took his ease. The book the Honorable Freddie was reading was a small paper-covered book. Its cover was decorated with a color scheme in red, black, and yellow, depicting a tense moment in the lives of a man with a black beard, a man with a yellow beard, a man without any beard at all, and a young woman who at first sight appeared to be all eyes and hair. The man with the black beard, to gain some private end, had tied this young woman with ropes to a complicated system of machinery, mostly wheels and pulleys. The man with the yellow beard was in the act of pushing or pulling a lever. The beardless man, protruding through a trap-door in the floor, was pointing a large revolver at the parties of the second part. "'Beneath this picture were the words, "'Hands up, you scoundrels. "'Above it, in a meandering scroll across the page, "'was Gridley Quail Investigator, "'The Adventure of the Secret Six, by Felix Clovely. "'The Honourable Freddy did not so much read "'as gulp the Adventure of the Secret Six. "'His face was crimson with excitement. "'His hair was rumpled, his eyes bulged. "'He was absorbed.' This is peculiarly an age in which each of us may, if we do but search diligently, find the literature suited to his mental powers. Grave and earnest men at Eton and elsewhere have tried Freddie Threepwood with Greek, with Latin, and with English. And the sheep-like stolidity with which he declined to be interested in the masterpieces of all three tongues had left them with the conviction that he would never read anything. And then, years afterwards, he had suddenly blossomed out as a student. Only, it is true, a student of the adventures of Gridley Quail, but still a student. His was a dull life, and Gridley Quail was the only person who brought romance into it. Existence for the Honorable Freddie was simply a sort of desert punctuated with monthly oases in the shape of new Quail adventures. It was his ambition to meet the man who wrote them. Lord Hemsworth sat and smoked and sipped and smoked again, at peace with all the world. His mind was as nearly a blank as it is possible for the human mind to be. The hand that had not the task of holding the cigar was at rest in his trousers' pocket. The fingers of it fumbled idly with a small, hard object. Gradually it flittered into his lordship's mind that this small, hard object was not familiar It was something new, something that was neither his keys nor his pencil, nor was it his small change. He yielded to a growing curiosity and drew it out. He examined it. It was a little something, rather like a fossilized beetle. It touched no chord in him. He looked at it with amiable distaste. Now, how in the world did that get in there? he said. The Honorable Freddy paid no attention to the remark. He was now at the very crest of his story, when every line intensified the thrill. Incident was succeeding incident. The secret six were here, there, and everywhere, like so many malignant June bugs. Annabelle, the heroine, was having a perfectly rotten time, kidnapped and imprisoned every few minutes. Gridley Quayle, hot on the scent, was covering somebody or other with his revolver, almost continuously. Freddy Threepwood had no time for chatting with his father, not so Rupert Baxter. Chatting with Lord Emsworth was one of the things for which he received his salary. He looked up from his cards. Lord Emsworth? I have found a curious object in my pocket, Baxter. I was wondering how it got there. He handed the thing to his secretary. Rupert Baxter's eyes lit up with sudden enthusiasm. He gasped. Magnificent, he cried. Superb. "'Lord Emsworth looked at him inquiringly. "'It is a scarab, Lord Emsworth, "'and unless I am mistaken, "'and I think I may claim to be something of an expert, "'a Cheops of the Fourth Dynasty, "'a wonderful addition to your museum. "'Is it? "'By gad, you don't say so, Baxter. "'It is indeed. "'If it is not a rude question, "'how much did you give for it, Lord Emsworth? "'It must have been the gem of somebody's collection.' "'Was there a sale at Christie's this afternoon?' "'Lord Emsworth shook his head. "'I did not get it at Christie's, "'for I recollect that I had an important engagement "'which prevented my going to Christie's. "'To be sure, yes, I had promised to call on Mr. Peters "'and examine his collection of... "'Now I wonder what it was that Mr. Peters said he collected.' "'Mr. Peters is one of the best-known living collectors of scarabs.' "'Scarabs, you are quite right, Baxter. "'Now that I recall the episode, this is a scarab, and Mr. Peters gave it to me.' "'Gave it to you, Lord Emsworth?' "'Yes, the whole scene comes back to me. "'Mr. Peters, after telling me a great many exceedingly interesting things about scarabs, "'which I regret to say I cannot remember, gave me this.' And you say it is really valuable, Baxter. It is, from a collector's point of view, of extraordinary value. Bless my soul, Lord Emsworth beamed, this is extremely interesting, Baxter. One has heard so much of the princely hospitality of Americans. How exceedingly kind of Mr. Peters. I shall certainly treasure it, though I must confess that from a purely spectacular standpoint it leaves me a little cold. "'However, I must not look a gift-horse in the mouth, eh, Baxter?' "'From afar came the silver booming of a gong. "'Lord Emsworth rose. "'Time to dress for dinner. "'I had no idea it was so late. "'Baxter, you'll be going past the museum door. "'Will you be a good fellow and place us among the exhibits? "'You'll know what to do with it better than I. "'I always think of you as the curator of my little collection, Baxter.' Mind how you step when you're in the museum. I was painting a chair there yesterday, and I think I left the paint pot on the floor. He cast a less amiable glance at his studious son. Get up, Frederick, and go on and dress for dinner. What is that trash you're reading? The Honorable Freddy came out of his book Much as a Sleepwalker Wakes, with a sense of having been violently assaulted. He looked up with a kind of stunned plaintiveness. Eh, Governor? "'Make haste! Beach rang the gong five minutes ago. "'What is that you're reading?' "'Oh, nothing, Governor, just a book. "'I wonder you can waste your time on such trash. "'Make haste!' He turned to the door, and the benevolent expression once more wandered athwart his face. "'Extremely kind of Mr. Peters,' he said. "'Really, there is something almost oriental "'in the lavish generosity of our American cousins.' It had taken R. Jones just six hours to discover Joan Valentine's address. That it had not taken him longer is a proof of his energy and of the excellence of his system of obtaining information. But R. Jones, when he considered it worth his while, could be extremely energetic, and he was a past master at the art of finding out things. He poured himself out of his cab and rang the bell of number seven. A disheveled maid answered the ring. Miss Valentine Inn... "'Yes, sir,' R. Jones produced his card. "'On important business, tell her. Half a minute, I'll write it.' He wrote the words on the card and devoted the brief period of waiting to a careful scrutiny of his surroundings. He looked out into the court, and he looked as far as he could down the dingy passage, and the conclusions he drew from what he saw were complimentary to Miss Valentine. "'If this girl is the sort of girl who would hold up Freddie's letters,' he mused, "'she wouldn't be living in a place like this. "'If she were on the make, "'she would have more money than she evidently possesses. "'Therefore, she is not on the make, "'and I am prepared to bet "'that she destroyed the letters as fast as she got them.' "'Those were roughly the thoughts of R. Jones "'as he stood in the doorway of Number 7, "'and they were important thoughts, "'inasmuch as they determined his attitude "'toward Joan in the approaching interview. "'He perceived that this matter "'must be handled delicately,' "'that he must be very much the gentleman. "'It would be a strain, but he must do it.' "'The maid returned and directed him to Jones' room "'with a brief word and a sweeping gesture. "'A,' said R. Jones, first floor. "'Front,' said the maid. "'R. Jones trudged laboriously up the short flight of stairs. "'It was very dark on the stairs, and he stumbled. "'Eventually, however, light came to him through an open door.' Looking in, he saw a girl standing at the table. She had an air of expectation, so he deduced that he had reached his journey's end. "'Miss Valentine?' "'Please come in.' R. Jones waddled in. "'Not much light on your stairs.' "'No. Will you take a seat?' "'Thanks.' One glance at the girl convinced R. Jones that he had been right. Circumstances had made him a rapid judge of character, For in the profession of living by one's wits in a large city, the first principle of offense and defense is to sum people up at first sight. This girl was not on the make. Joan Valentine was a tall girl with weak gold hair and eyes as brightly blue as a November sky when the sun is shining on a frosty world. There was in them a little of November's cold glitter, too, for Joan had been through much in the last few years. An experience, even though it does not harden, erects a defensive barrier between its children and the world. Her eyes were eyes that looked straight and challenged. They could thaw to the satin blue of the Mediterranean Sea, where it purrs about the little villages of southern France. But they did not thaw for everybody. She looked what she was, a girl of action, a girl whom life had made both reckless and wary, wary of friendly advances, reckless when there is a venture afoot. Her eyes, as they met R. Jones's, now were cold and challenging. She, too, had learned the trick of swift diagnosis of character, and what she saw of R. Jones in that first glance did not impress her favorably. You wish to see me on business? Yes, said R. Jones. Yes, Miss Valentine. May I begin by begging you to realize that I have no intention of insulting you. Jones's eyebrows rose. For an instant, she did her visitor the injustice of suspecting that he had been dining too well. "'I don't understand. "'Let me explain. "'I have come here,' R. Jones went on, "'getting more gentlemanly every moment, "'on a very distasteful errand to oblige a friend. "'Will you bear in mind that whatever I say is said entirely on his behalf?' By this time, Joan had abandoned the idea that this stout person was a life-insurance tout and was inclining to the view that he was collecting funds for a charity. I came here at the request of the Honorable Frederick Threepwood. I don't quite understand. You never met him, Miss Valentine, but when you were in the course at the Piccadilly Theatre, I believe he wrote you some very foolish letters. Possibly you have forgotten them." I certainly have. You have probably destroyed them, then, eh? Certainly. I never keep letters. Why do you ask? Well, you see, Miss Valentine, the Honorable Frederick Threepwood is about to be married, and he thought that possibly on the whole it would be better that the letters and poetry which he wrote you were non-existent. Not all are Jones's gentlemanliness and during this speech he diffused it like a powerful scent in waves about him could hide the unpleasant meaning of the words. "'He was afraid I might try to blackmail him,' said Joan, with formidable calm. R. Jones raised and waved a fat hand, deprecatingly. "'My dear Miss Valentine.' Joan rose and R. Jones followed her example. The interview was plainly at an end. "'Please tell Mr. Threepwood to make his mind quite easy.' "'He is in no danger.' "'Exactly, exactly, precisely. "'I assured Threepwood that my visit here would be a mere formality. "'I was quite sure you had no intention, whatever, of worrying him. "'I may tell him definitely, then, that you have destroyed the letters.' "'Yes, good evening.' "'Good evening, Miss Valentine.' "'The closing of the door behind him left him in total darkness.' but he hardly liked to return and asked Joan to reopen it in order to light him on his way. He was glad to be out of her presence. He was used to being looked at in an unfriendly way by his fellows, but there had been something in Joan's eyes that had curiously discomfited him. R. Jones groped his way down, relieved that all was over and had ended well. He believed what she had told him, and he could conscientiously assure Freddy that the prospect of his sharing the fate of poor old Percy was non-existent. It is true that he proposed to add in his report that the destruction of the letters had been purchased with difficulty at a cost of just five hundred pounds, but that was a mere business formality. He had almost reached the last step when there was a ring at the front door. With what he was afterwards wont to call an inspiration... He retreated with unusual nimbleness until he had almost reached Joan's door again. Then he leaned over the banister and listened. The disheveled maid opened the door. A girl's voice spoke. Is Miss Valentine in? She's in, but she's engaged. I wish you would go up and tell her that I want to see her. Say it's Miss Peters. The banister shook beneath R. Jones's sudden clutch. For a moment he felt almost faint. "'Then he began to think swiftly. "'A great light had dawned on him, "'and the thought outstanding in his mind "'was that never again would he trust a man or woman "'on the evidence of his senses. "'He could have sworn that this Valentine girl was on the level. "'He had been perfectly satisfied with her statement "'that she had destroyed the letters. "'And all the while she had been playing as deep a game "'as he had come across in the whole course of his professional career.' He almost admired her. How she had taken him in. It was obvious now what her game was. Previous to his visit, she had arranged a meeting with Freddie's fiance, with the view of opening negotiations for the sale of the letters. She had held him, Jones, at arm's length because she was going to sell the letters to whoever would pay the best price. But for the accident of his happening to be here when Miss Peters arrived... Freddie and his fiance would have been bidding against each other "'and raising each other's price. "'He had worked the same game himself a dozen times, "'and he resented the entry of female competition "'into what he regarded as essentially a male field of enterprise. "'As the maid stumped up the stairs, he continued his retreat. "'He heard Joan's door open, "'and the stream of light showed him the disheveled maid standing in the doorway.' "'Oh, I thought there was a gentleman with you, miss.' "'He left a moment ago. Why? "'There's a lady wants to see you. Miss Peters, her name is. "'Will you ask her to come up?' "'The disheveled maid was no polished mistress of ceremonies.' "'She leaned down into the void and hailed Aileen. "'She says, will you come up?' "'Aileen's feet became audible on the staircase. "'There were greetings. "'Whatever brings you here, Aileen?' "'Am I interrupting you, Joan dear?' "'No, do come in. "'I was only surprised to see you so late. "'I didn't know you paid calls at this hour. "'Is anything wrong? "'Come in.' "'The door closed. "'The maid retired to the depths, "'and R. Jones stole cautiously down again. "'He was feeling absolutely bewildered. "'Apparently his deductions, "'his second thoughts, "'had been all wrong, "'and Joan was, after all, "'the honest person he had imagined at first. Those two girls had talked to each other as though they were old friends, as though they had known each other all their lives. That was the thing which perplexed R. Jones. He approached the door and put his ear to it. He found he could hear quite comfortably. Aileen, meantime, inside the room, had begun to draw comfort from Joan's very appearance. She looked so capable. Joan's eyes had changed the expression they had contained during the recent interview— they were soft now, with a softness that was half compassionate, half contemptuous. It is the compensation which life gives to those whom has handled roughly, in order that they shall be able to regard, with a certain contempt, the small troubles of the sheltered. Joan remembered Aileen of old, and knew her for a perennial victim of small troubles. Even in their school days she had always needed to be looked after and comforted her sweet temper had seemed to invite the minor slings and arrows of fortune. Aileen was a girl who inspired protectiveness in a certain type of her fellow human beings. It was this quality in her that kept George Emerson awake at nights, and it appealed to Joan now. Joan, for whom life was a constant struggle to keep the wolf within a reasonable distance from the door, and who counted that day happy, on which she saw her way clear to paying her weekly rent and possibly having a trifle over some coveted hat or pair of shoes, could not help feeling, as she looked at Aileen, that her own troubles were as nothing, and that the immediate need of the moment was to pet and comfort her friend. Her knowledge of Aileen told her the probable tragedy was that she had lost a brooch or had been spoken to crossly by somebody. But it also told her that such tragedies... "'bolt very large on Aileen's horizon. "'Trouble, after all, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. "'And Aileen was far less able to endure with fortitude "'the loss of a brooch than she herself to bear the loss of a position, "'the emoluments of which meant the difference "'between having just enough to eat and starving. "'You're worried about something,' she said. "'Sit down and tell me all about it. Aileen sat down and looked about her at the shabby room. By that curious process of the human mind, she was feeling oddly comforted already. Her thoughts were not definite, and she could not analyze them. But what they amounted to was that, though it was an unpleasant thing to be bullied by a dyspeptic father, the world manifestly held worse tribulations, which her father's other outstanding quality, besides dyspepsia, wealth, to wit, enabled her to avoid. It was at this point that the dim beginnings of philosophy began to invade her mind. The thing resolved itself almost into an equation. If father had not had indigestion, he would not have bullied her. But if father had not made a fortune, he would not have had indigestion. Therefore, if father had not made a fortune, he would not have bullied her. "'Practically, in fact. "'If Father did not bully her, he would not be rich, "'and if he were not rich... "'She took in the faded carpet, "'the stained wallpaper, and the soiled curtains, "'with a comprehensive glance. "'It certainly cut both ways. "'She began to be a little ashamed of her misery. "'It's nothing at all, really,' she said. "'I think I've been making rather a fuss about very little.' "'Joan was relieved.' The struggling life breeds moods of depression, and such a mood had come to her just before Aileen's arrival. Life at that moment had seemed to stretch before her like a dusty, weary road without hope. She was sick of fighting. She wanted money and ease, and a surcease from this perpetual race with the weekly bills. The mood had been the outcome partly of R. Jones's gentlemanly-like veiled insinuations, but still more, though she did not realize it, "'of her yesterday's meeting with Aileen. "'Mr. Peters might be unguarded in his speech "'when conversing with his daughter. "'He might play the tyrant toward her in many ways. "'But he did not stint her in the matter of dress allowance. "'And on the occasion when she met Joan, "'Aileen had been wearing so Parisian a hat "'and a tailor-made suit of such obviously expensive simplicity "'that green-eyed envy had almost spoiled "'Joan's pleasure at meeting this friend of her opulent days.' She had surpassed the envy, and it had revenged itself by assaulting her afresh in the form of the worst fit of the blues she had had in two years. She had been loyally ready to sink her depression in order to alleviate Aileen's, but it was a distinct relief to find that the feat would not be necessary. "'Never mind,' she said. "'Tell me what the very little thing was.' "'It was only father,' said Aileen simply." Joan cast her mind back to the days of school and placed father as a rather irritable person, vaguely reputed to be something of an ogre in his home circle. "'Was he angry with you about something?' she asked. "'Not exactly angry with me, but, well, I was there.' Joan's depression lifted slightly. She had forgotten, in the stunning anguish of the spectacle of that hat and that tailor-made suit, that Paris Hats and $120 suits, not infrequently, had but the vulgar term, a string attached to them. After all, she was independent. She might have to murder her beauty with hats and frocks that had never been near Paris than the Tottenham Court Road, but at least no one bullied her because she happened to be at hand when tempers were short. "'What a shame,' she said. "'Tell me all about it.' With a remark that it was all so ridiculous, really, "'Aileen embarked on the narrative of the afternoon's events. "'Joan heard her out, checking a strong disposition to giggle. "'Her viewpoint was that of the average person, "'and the average person cannot see the importance "'of the scarab in the scheme of things. "'The opinion she formed of Mr. Peters "'was of his being an eccentric old gentleman, "'making a great to-do about nothing at all. "'Losses had to have a concrete value "'before they could impress Joan.' "'It was beyond her grasp that Mr. Peters "'would sooner have lost a diamond necklace "'if he had happened to possess one "'than his Cheops of the Fourth Dynasty. "'It was not until Aileen, having conducted her tale, "'added one more strand to it "'that she found herself treating the matter seriously. "'Father says he would give $5,000 "'to anyone who would get it back for him. "'What?' "'The whole story took on a different complexion for Joan.' "'Money talks.' "'Mr. Peter's words might have been merely "'the rhetorical outburst of a heated moment, "'but even discounting them, "'there seemed to remain a certain exciting substratum. "'A man who shouts that he will give $5,000 for a thing "'may very well mean he will give 500 "'and Joan's finances were perpetually in a condition "'which makes $500 a sum to be gasped at.' "'He wasn't serious, Shirley.' "'I think he was,' said Aileen.' "'But $5,000? "'It isn't really very much to Father, you know. "'He gave away a 100000 a year ago to a university. "'But for a grubby little scarab? "'You don't understand how Father loves his scarabs. "'Since he retired from business, he's been simply wrapped up in them. "'You know, collectors are all like that. "'You read in the papers about men giving all sorts of money for funny things.' Outside the door, R. Jones, his ear close to the panel, drank in all these things greedily. He would have been willing to remain in that attitude indefinitely in return for this kind of special information. But just as Aileen said these words, a door opened on the floor above, and somebody came out, whistling, and began to descend the stairs. R. Jones stood not on the order of his going, He was down in the hall and fumbling with the handle of the front door with an agility of which few casual observers of his dimensions would have deemed him capable. The next moment he was out in the street, pondering over what he had heard. Much of R. Jones's substantial annual income was derived from pondering over what he had heard. In the room, Joan was looking at Aileen with the distended eyes of one who sees visions or has inspirations. She got up. There are occasions when one must speak standing. Then you mean to say that your father would really give $5,000 to anyone who got this thing back for him? I am sure he would, but who could do it? I could, said Joan, and what is more, I'm going to. Aileen stared at her helplessly. In their school days, Joan had always swept her off her feet, Then she had always had the feeling that with Joan nothing was impossible. Heroine worship, like hero worship, dies hard. She looked at Joan now with the stricken sensation of one who has inadvertently set powerful machinery in motion. "'But Joan!' it was all she could say. "'My dear child, it's perfectly simple. "'This earl of yours has taken the thing off to his castle, like a brigand. "'You say you're going down there on Friday for a visit.' All you have to do is take me along with you and sit back and watch me get busy. But, Joan, where's the difficulty? I don't see how I could take you down very well. Why not? Oh, I don't know. But what is your objection? Well, don't you see? If you went down there as a friend of mine and were caught stealing the scarab, there would be just the trouble Father wants to avoid about my engagement, you see, and so on. It was an aspect of the matter that had escaped Joan. She frowned thoughtfully. "'I see. "'Yes, there is that, but there must be a way. "'You mustn't, Joan, really. "'Don't think any more about it. "'Not think any more about it? "'My child, do you even faintly realize "'what five thousand dollars, "'or a quarter of five thousand dollars, "'means to me? "'I would do anything for it, anything. "'And there's the fun of it. "'I don't suppose you can realize that, either,' "'I want a change. "'I've been grubbing away here on nothing a week for years, "'and it's time I had a vacation. "'There must be a way by which you could get me down. "'Why, of course. "'Why didn't I think of it? "'You shall take me on Friday as your lady's maid.' "'But, Joan, I couldn't.' "'Why not?' "'I I couldn't. "'Why not?' "'Oh, well.' "'Joan advanced on her where she sat "'and grasped her firmly by the shoulders.' Her face was inflexible. Aileen, my pet, it's no good arguing. You might just as well argue with a wolf on the trail of a fat Russian peasant. I need that money. I need it in my business. I need it worse than anybody's ever needed anything. And I'm going to have it. From now on, until further notice, I am your lady's maid. You can give your present one a holiday. Aileen met her eyes waveringly. The spirit of the old school days, when nothing was impossible, where Joan was concerned, had her in its grip. Moreover, the excitement of the scheme began to attract her. "'But Joan,' she said, "'you know it's simply ridiculous. "'You could never pass as a lady's maid. "'The other servants would find you out. "'I expect there are all sorts of things a lady's maid has got to do and not do. "'My dear Aileen, I know them all. "'You can't stump me on below-stairs etiquette.' I've been a lady's maid. Joan? It's quite true, three years ago. The wolf was glued to the door like a postage stamp, so I answered an advertisement and became a lady's maid. You seem to have done everything. I have pretty nearly. It's all right for you idle rich, Aileen. You can sit still and contemplate life. But we poor working girls have got a hustle. Aileen laughed. You know you always could make me do anything you wanted in the old days, Joan. I suppose I've got a look on this as quite settled now. Absolutely settled. Oh, Aileen, there's one thing you must remember. Don't call me Joan when I'm down at the castle. You must call me Valentine. She paused. The recollection of the Honorable Freddy had come to her. No, Valentine would not do... "'No, not Valentine,' she went on. "'It's too jaunty. "'I used it once years ago, but it never sounded just right. "'I want something more respectable, more suited to my position. "'Can't you suggest something?' "'Aileen pondered. "'Simpson? "'Simpson, it's exactly right. "'You must practice it. "'Simpson, say it kindly and yet distantly, "'as though I were a worm, "'but a worm for whom you felt a mild liking.' "'Roll it around your tongue. "'Simpson. "'Splendid. "'Now once again a little more haughtily. "'Simpson, Simpson, Simpson. "'Joan regarded her with affectionate approval. "'It's wonderful,' she said. "'You might have been doing it all your life.' "'What are you laughing at?' asked Aileen. "'Nothing,' said Joan. "'I was just thinking of something. "'There's a young man who lives on the floor above this.' and I was lecturing him yesterday on Enterprise. I told him to go and find something exciting to do. I wonder what he would say if he knew how thoroughly I'm going to practice what I preach. (laughs) Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.